This is the weirdest I don't get it, I reckon, we've ever had. So, so I think it was Anne rang up last week. She said this, say a person got shrunk and could live in either a beehive or an ant's nest, ignoring for a moment the ants and the bees, so assuming they were both vacant, which would be the most comfortable environment for a human, a very little human, to live in? Uh, a, uh, an ant's nest or a beehive? So we've got two answers. Um, Associate Professor Dita Hoculi from the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Sydney is with us. He's also going to tell us about how uh, inner city spiders are different from rural and regional spiders a little bit uh, a little bit later on. G'day, Dita. Hi, James. How are you? Good. I, I suppose they listen to more hip-hop, but yeah. we will get to that soon. Um, I, firstly, the, other, uh, evo- the evolutionary biologist we sometimes talk to, Professor Michael Gillings from, the, from Macquarie University, I asked his, his view as well. Uh, he, he couldn't be with us tonight, but he very kindly sent in his thoughts. So I'll share them with you, then you can comment on them, about yep. uh, a miniature human, would you be more comfortable in an ant's nest or a beehive? He said this very definitively, I'd go for an ant's nest every time. Beehives and bee combs hang vertically, so it'd be pretty difficult to get around the nest. And the nest would be uh, usually high off the ground, making entry and exit difficult. Beehives are also open plan with no private nooks or crannies. So the ant's nest has tunnels you can walk down, cul-de-sacs you can claim as your own and even expand a bit, do a bit of renovating, entrances and exits at ground level and providing you can pretend to be a larva by producing the right pheromones, all the food you want, providing you don't mind drinking ant spit. Uh, Both ant nests and beehives are pretty well temperature controlled, although ants' nests are more prone to flooding. So you're an insect expert. He's an evolutionary biologist. Do you want to blow him out of the water, or do you think he makes some good points? No, I think he's on the money with a lot of those points. Um, I mean, the, the issue is, I mean, I'm just wondering, are the bees and the ants still living there? Are you, are you having to pretend you're one of them to fit in, or are you living there all by yourself without anyone else no, being there? No, it was a very specific hypothetical scenario for some reason, uh, where Anne, I think it was Anne, said, said assuming they, they weren't there, they'd all moved out. Ah, yeah, but we can we can explore both scenarios. Well, well, like architecturally, I guess if you're, in terms of whether you're a sort of a minimalist or you like having lots of stuff around, the bees have a lot of um, you know, those hex, hexagonal shapes, those cells that they build for their larvae to live in. So if you're you know, if you're a juvenile bee, you're basically living in this small cell, and someone's bringing you food all the time. I'm guessing they're all is that empty. right? Well, yeah, they're, they're basically they've got no legs. They're just basically, um, or they're just heads being fed. Wow. Various things by the um, the female workers through there, so you've got those structural attributes. But you know that they are they just tend to be built in in hollows or in places. Um, they'll build they'll build them in these large areas off the ground to get them away from um, potential predators because obviously they're a, a fantastic resource for for um, a lot of animals that are feeding happy to feed on them. So you've probably seen the shots of bears attack, attacking nests in yeah, the, yeah. North America. I mean that's you know all based in reality. So. Whereas um, an ant's nest, um, as Michael mentioned, it's, it's architecture a little bit more complex there. There's, you know, there's obviously thousands and thousands of different species of ants, but um, there's a chap in the US who's um, been pouring molten aluminium down um, ants' nests. What a bad, ar- really? What a bad thing to do. It's pretty brutal, and he's actually come under a bit of criticism for it. And Fair it's also, enough. It's also been... Um, Can you imagine doing that? Like, that would kill tens of thousands of ants, Yes. Yep. What if, you, what if he was doing that with pigeons or something? There'd be an outrage. You'd why do, are, you'd why be in are, a lot of trouble. I know. Why are ants less worthy of our protection than pigeons? 
Oh, well, they're not really counted as animals under our animal ethics legislation. So, for instance, at university, if we work on a, on a bird or a mammal, we have to put in all sorts of forms to work on them. But work on ants, we can do pretty much whatever we like to them. Now, I don't, I don't want to go on a huge sidetrack, oh, but, yeah, but, just, but I do want to go on a little sidetrack, so I don't yeah. apologise. Uh, just briefly, do you yeah. think that, that, just, oh. that, that discrepancy is wrong? Um, look, it's, it's difficult. A lot of it goes down to sentience and to how these animals feel pain. And I guess it's, it's one of those almost an intractable questions because we, mm. we tend to think because they've got very simple nervous systems, most of these insects and the like don't um, feel pain. But you look at the responses they have if a, a leg gets ripped off and things like that, and you, they have these sorts of, of odd responses. So it's, you know, we, 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 as part of our work, quite often as entomologists, we have to kill our animals to learn how to identify them. And I think overwhelmingly most of us um, try to be very clear on limiting the sorts of damage you do with many of those sorts of animals. So mm. with, with the pour, pouring the, um, the molten aluminium down, it's sort, of, it's sort of, it's proven to be a really important piece of work because it's shown how they actually build different sections of their nests for different functions. Okay, different... so, so wh- how, why is he doing that? Because um, essentially these ants, the ants he's working on burrow down to two and a bit metres mm. and um, he's done excavations in that classical kind of sense where you sort of just remove bits and pieces um, along the way but it's, this has proven to be just a more effective way of looking at the architecture of the nests and the different um, functions of different types of animals you find in different parts of the nest. So, so, he, so he ends up really with a cast of the entire nest? He ends up with this two-metre sculpture, essentially. It's actually been... He exhibits them um, in art galleries as well. Um, I mean, they're, they're really quite extraordinary structures. It's one of those things that you, you just don't realise what's beneath your feet when you're walking past in terms of the, yeah. the complexity of the structures the ants build. And when you realise there are different functions attached to, attached to things that are at different depths, for instance, because they've got different um, temperature profiles at some... It's quite extraordinary, and some ants grow funguses in them to feed their feed their um, offspring, and it's really so. The different functions are like what? Um, um, like like different. The temperature that a lot of these animals are reared at determines what type of um, worker they're going to become. So you're probably oh, aware that all the workers in, in the ant world and the in the bee world are, are females. Um, the temperatures that they're reared at have been shown to have a different function in terms of the types of workers they become. Mm. And so basically you can control what, how many or what you're going to be producing by rearing them at the slightly warmer or the cooler parts. So that's um, one of the really, you know, the, the really clever parts of what they do. Pigeons don't do that. Pigeons don't. No, pigeons are pretty simple compared yeah. to ants and the like. Yeah. But look, the, the, the short answer to your question, I mean, I think, I think living in an ant... Just, sorry, just one more thing. Oh, there's oh. no way, like just going back to the molten aluminium oh, guy, yes. there's no way of luring them out, is there, before you pour it in. Oh, you could lure a bunch of them out. You could put baits out to um, yeah. to get a lot of them out. But essentially, there are there are ants in that nest whose sole function it is to stay in that in in that nest and tend the larvae. Yeah, and they never come clean out. up, and they they wouldn't come out. Only the foragers would come out, and mm. the queen wouldn't come out. So the reality is, um, you know, it's a pretty, I suppose, a brutal way of um trying to study the architecture of these sorts of things. I mean, people have done it with plaster of Paris, Paris and the like too, but um, mm. it came to a head a, a little while back when people were doing it and then selling the, um, the, the artwork, if you like, on eBay and people, you know, it wasn't being done for gathering right. and understanding. It was just, um, yeah. just and I, I believe the ants he's work on, they're also, um, I think one of the ants he works on is a, um, an invasive ant, a pest ant. So there's a, it's one of the ants that's actually, you know, chemically controlled. So it's, it's. Right. So if, you, if you've got that sort of environmental bent to your, your, yeah. um, your ethos, then you can sort of you know, say, well, people are out there trying to kill them anyway, um, pest mm. controllers and the like. And, you know, and they're an environmental problem because ants, the, the ants that he works on move into these areas and exclude 
um, the native ants from these right. areas, so they're seen as a, a pest in that sense. But yeah. so, so assuming you could live in an ants nest that wasn't going to have molten um, aluminium poured down it, yep. You think you prefer to be there than in a beehive? Oh, look, I don't, well, for a start, I don't, I don't like heights, so I don't want to go up <laughs> into the, the heights and head up in those sorts of areas. Um, and I guess you know, there's, it's a little bit more free, free ranging, I guess, if you're down underground. Like it would be like living in a massive cave system, essentially. If, they, if you can imagine, they have a yeah. entrance or multiple entrances, and then you you burrow down, and then they'll, they'll be have all sorts of different sorts of chambers and areas that are. You can have some that are closer to the surface for when it's a bit cooler. And then when it's really hot, you can go further down. I mean, which is what ants actually do. So you know, they'll they'll, they'll moderate the um, the places they're they're staying at to try and um, manage their temperatures. Mm. I mean, in an Australian environment, if a fire goes through, you know, the ant, you know, the ant, if the ants are down low enough, they'll be buffered from the the effects of the heat of that fire coming through. Uh, that, that's a trick that a lot of our native plants use with their seeds as well, where ants bury their seeds down and they're protected from some of the fire. So. So yeah, look, I think you know, assuming these animals are um are out of those nests, I wouldn't like to live in either of them, to be honest, because both ants and honeybees aren't very fond of having other things living in their in their nests. Not bad. the ants, but um, yeah, I'd probably say as a human, the ants would be nice. The one thing that you might think about though is that honeybees, especially when they're there, do an incredible job maintaining a very clean environment. So my my, my feeling about the the honeybees, when we when we think of bees' nests, we tend to think of honeybees. Mm. Um. If you're in those sort of minimalist, all very clean environments, I mean, maybe if you've got, you know, got the hexagons, the cleanliness, there's antibiotics or, anti- or antibacterial things. Wouldn't often. suit me, that. Um, yeah, where the ants' nests are a little bit more um, busy and all over the place, and there's yeah. a, little, a little bit more happening architecturally, be a little bit, it's a little bit more um, diverse. Who do you reckon has a better life? Probably a bee, because they can fly. If, if, if you're not, not one of the ones that's confined to barracks, but probably yeah. prefer to be a bee than an ant? Um, well, it's, well, assuming I'm going to make, still be a male, I'm pretty much the same in either. I'm pretty useful in both um, communities. Yeah. I'm just a, you know, I'm basically an ant because I'm an unfertilised egg that grew up to be a, a male drone just waiting to fly out and find a female and start a nest. But in terms of living in these things, um, the ant world's pretty brutal. There's a lot more fighting in the ant world. So if I was choosing between being an ant and a bee, um, bees spend a lot of their time being attracted to colours and and smells and finding you know, flowers. Yeah, it's nice. Flying back. Uh, bees do a lot more dancing too because you know they, they they signal to each other by mm. using a dance. So you know, you know, it's a bit sad as a middle-aged man. I'm quite fond of a dance. So, <laughs> you know, so you know, assuming I could get into that sort of thing, from out there foraging, going and sticking my head into flowers, bringing some, some yeah. pollen back. So you'd have to be become if you could be a female bee. Yeah, I have to be a female. Would be but it would be much. It's probably more interesting. I mean. Yeah. You know, you, you tend to be doing a lot of things, and if you're, you know, if you're a female ant, you could be a worker, you could be a soldier ant as well. Um, now, when you yeah. say they do a lot of fighting, that's not between themselves. That's with like, you know, uh, little other critters that they want to uh, eat. It's pretty much with with other colonies a lot of the time. We've oh, done some work with um, you know, where ants of the same species from different colonies will fight to try and maintain a territory. They they have a lot of um, that sort of intra species are intraspecific fighting. We have a lot of interspecific fighting or fights between species where they're trying to own a particular patch of the environment. So when the other ants are foraging there, they actually have these little almost um, fronts, a war front where you'll see these ants lined up fighting each other um, at a certain distance away from their main nest. So the ant ant world is is brutal. It's really, they spend a lot of time trying to monopolise resources. Um, So it's like when you drop... um, food on a picnic you'll, you'll often find multiple species might turn up just to, to try and um 
start mm. eating that. But if you sit there for an hour or so and watch it, what you'll find is that after a while, one group of ants will tend to monopolise and actually fight the other ants away from it. And that's how we actually we identify which ants are dominant. Now, when you say fight, like I'm trying to imagine two ants fighting, do they... Do they go with their front legs? Do they go with their sort of uh, mouth or big what? Big jaws, yeah, big big jaws. Yeah, I mean, there's, right. some, there's, there's some extraordinary ants out there. That, um, I think um, trap the um, trap jaw ants with it, that have massive mandibles. Those sort of big mouth parts, those big spiny mouth parts, and they they have a pretty vicious bite on them. Uh, some ants have got stings as well. Mm. So some ants and um, some ants have got an, a little an acid sprayer basically to do a lot of their fighting. So they're They'll, they'll use it to pacify prey and also to you know, fight each other, basically, and try and, you know, ant, you know, different species of ants aren't very, very kind to each other. Yeah. Do ants ever fight bees? I mean, that probably is... Oh, answer. look, yeah, well, and that's the sort of thing. That's, if you're a, if you're a, a bee, um, you, you've produced this incredible resource that's full of protein in, in terms of all the larvae you've got there and all, um, obviously all the honey and the light through there. So it's, um, you know, if, 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 if it's, it's the sort of thing that if you can get in there and, re- and re- recruit to it and sort of start taking the, you know, the bees away and all that sort of thing, it's the sort of thing that um, your average ant group of ants would really love to get in. That's why that's why bees often choose to put their, um, they, they, they do a lot of careful selection to choose to put their their, their, their hives or their nests in, in places that are um, um, away from us. Or to try and you know avoid things getting into them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and just if it came down to a fight between an ant and a bee, like the 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 bee's got the big cannon, haven't they? The sting. Yeah, the one-off sting. Yeah. Um, but, but 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 apart from that, they look kind of puny and soft. Yeah. Look, I mean, I mean, they I mean, they're much the bees that the honey or honeybees in particular are much bigger animals than the ant, than most ants would generally. But ants would tend to recruit multiple things to these areas, and they'd probably try and get into the into a nest um, on mass. But mm. um, so it's not, it's not, you know, it's, it's not, not usually, I mean, an individual ant, an, indiv- an individual sort of enemy of the ant. The ants tend to win these fights by getting sheer numbers to the contest. Yes. And, um, indiv- I don't know. Um, that's a, who would win a fight between an ant and a bee? Well, because um, the, the bee could use its sting once, but whether, yeah. whether it could even deploy it accurately against a little ant. It, it, it would strike me as being very unlikely that a sting, yeah. just because of the nature. I mean, they're, they're useful for fighting off um, things like you know, bee eaters, those birds that tend to you know, go into those sorts of... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the ants are just going to be all over it and eventually they're going to drag it down, aren't they, unless oh, it flies off? Oh, you, you see the footage in some of those nature documentaries of ants marching through various forests and you realise on, on a smaller scale it's just happening everywhere. Ants are very good at identifying opportunities, recruiting their, their mates from their nests into these areas and then monopolising that resource, getting that food or... Or beating up the, the thing, you know, the things that have got the hole that they want to live in, and that's why they're often fighting each other too. They're just, they're probably, you know, in terms of dominance and systems, they're one of the dominant animals on the planet. They're just being able to monopolise resources in various ways. They really shape the environments we live in a lot, just through digging their holes or moving seeds around or all those sorts of things. I think there's something like a, not a billion, but a billion billion ants for every person. The, the, the numbers are staggering. They're always framed in the, the number of MCGs that would take you could fill with ants and things. Like I don't actually have the numbers of, of how many ants there are per person. They're just lots, and there's no doubt that they're they're pretty central to our way of life in many ways because of the role they play in, in natural systems. In terms of you know, like I say, they, you know, they also pollinate plants as well. But they basically do all sorts of stuff that's just really important for us. Yeah, yeah. We're talking to uh, Associate Professor Dieter Hockley from the School of Biological Sciences. At the University of Sydney, started off by a question on I don't get it 
um, uh, last week about which would be the better environment for a very small person, an ant's nest or a beehive. Apparently the answer uh, unanimously is an ant's nest. Now, Dad, we also want to talk to you about about inner city spiders and how urban environments have been, well, affecting them and affecting sort of sort of the insect world uh, as a whole. Yep. Yeah, look, we're... we're we do a lot of work on, on the ecology of urban systems, and we've just recently published a paper that um, was probably a, a feel-good story, if you like, spiders and the like. A lot of the work we do shows how urbanisation um, influences biodiversity negative, negatively mm. and reduces ecosystem function. But we work on... Um, one of my students, one of my postgrad students, Lizzie Lowe, has done some work on a, a golden orb weaver, these really big yellowish spiders with this golden web that you'll see really commonly in, in summer, January and February around Sydney. And she's found that um, essentially... The spiders that are living in urbanised environments are fatter and have more uh, more fat reserves, bigger ovaries than the ones that are living in their natural environments. And we've so so. I mean, that seems to suggest they're thriving. It's, it's it's we've got some pretty compelling evidence that they actually thrive in urban environments. And they're, they're a group of species that we think are, um, we call them urban adapters. They're a group of species that really like living in cities for for a range of different reasons. So, um, brush-tailed possums are another one. Sometimes. Um, some, some plants are obviously very prominent city dwellers as well. Um, camp, oh, um, blue triangle butterflies and other. But these spiders in particular um, seem to be getting bigger. We think that they're responding in part to the thermal environment that they're in in terms of cities tend to retain heat and tend to reflect heat. So these, these animals who are, who are tracking their thermal environment are living in slightly warmer conditions and they might be growing a little bit quicker. We also think there's probably decent food sources for them, particularly for things like honeybees and the like. They seem to be very successful at catching a lot of honeybees um, in these areas. And we think that a lot of their predators um, have been knocked out by fragmentation and, and urbanisation. So they're probably living in a, a reasonably good world. So um, there, there, it's like I say, it's probably a feel-good story. It's, I mean, a lot of people might not think having bigger spiders producing more babies in cities is necessarily... Yeah, it doesn't sound that good, good to thing. me, yeah. But, they do play a pretty important role. They eat a lot of other bugs too. So if you don't like some of the other bugs, they'll be hoeing into them. And it's one of those little fascinating things that, that's emerging around the world. There's a whole lot of species that are responding positively to cities. I mean, unfortunately, an overwhelming majority don't. They just tend to disappear from city environments. And the reason it's sort of interesting is that having nature in our cities is proving to be an important thing for human well-being. There's a lot of interesting work at the moment that's showing that having green spaces, particularly um, natural green spaces, is, is strongly associated with physical and mental well-being in people. So there's actually a good reason to try and hang on to it for, for our health, even if you don't particularly like spiders. So so, so is there evidence to suggest, you know, that the, that the spiders are kind of changing to adapt to living in a city as, as, as opposed to living in a, you know, within the countryside? Well, there is a little bit. Um, it, it, we're trying to look at it now with our spiders, but there's a really um, interesting body of evidence emerging from other parts of the world that a lot of animals that um, that recruit their, their partners through song are actually evolving new songs in response to the, the, the pressures of city living, particularly the volume of things. So things like frogs, um, birds, and even some, some grasshoppers in, in Germany. Mm-hmm. We've got some interesting work showing that um, basically animals are modifying their behaviour with respect to the, the selection pressures that city are, 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 are invoking. And it's sort of a, a rapid form of evolution, essentially. If you don't sing effectively in these particularly noisy environments, you're not going to be attracting the mates, you're not going to be passing on your genes. And there's some work in, well, the German work in particular, showing the grasshoppers 
uh, are evolving in your song in response to the sounds of cities. It's really quite fascinating. And, and, and how would that song be different? Would it just be louder, would it? Or just be uh, something that's going to cut through the background noise a bit more effectively? I, I, my understanding is that it, it, it's partially related to the, the, the volumes that are there and also partially related to the, the isolation that the different um, uh, populations are going through. Because one of the ways that, that evolution's worked is that when populations become reproductively isolated, they evolve their own sort of specialities. That's why a lot of islands have a very distinct fauna and flora. And so it's, it's the, 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 I suppose the explanations I've seen of it relate to both the, the isolation of the populations and the selection pressures that are, that are, that are being in, um, enforced on them, I suppose. The, um, yeah, the, the, the noises, so you find that... I mean, there's a negative side to the story too. A lot of things that do communicate and, and find mates through sound often um, have it all disrupted by cities and just, um, yeah... Mm. I mean, it's, it is interesting, isn't it? We, when we got our dog, he we had to keep him off the road. He didn't know the difference yeah. between the footpath and the road. And now, what, two years later, we don't have to worry at all. He knows, even though the footpath and the road kind of look similar, don't they, if you're a dog? Oh, and, yeah. and there's just one step between them. But he'll very confidently walk all over the footpath and never set foot on the road. Yeah, so, well, so, so that's learned behaviour, isn't it? Yeah, yeah well, it is learned behaviour. I mean, and there's a lot of evidence that relatively simple animals can do a lot of learning too, and that's one of the, the fascinating things with respect to studying the behaviour of, of various types of animals is realising how you very quickly can get these, these changes in behaviour, some of which become um, evolved relationships and some of which are, are these relationships that are just responding to the, I suppose, the immediate pressures. Um, I mean, we, we were talking about spiders before. There's some work that I heard of um, when I was at a conference um, a few weeks ago that talked about spider personalities and the facts that um, the, the likelihood that spiders are becoming bolder and more, um, more willing to take risks when they're foraging in urban environments compared to um, mm. non-urban environments. So you sort of have... There's an, it's a fascinating place to be at the moment. It's, it's, a lot of this work is, is, is very new and it's one of those things where you hear it and you, you're often a little bit sceptical the first few times you hear it, but there's, there's a biggish body of work emerging now looking at these notions that some of these very simple animals have quite... Um, well, we call them personalities, which is, is causing a lot of, you know, I suppose, hoo-ha amongst the scientific community, but essentially these repeatable behaviours yeah, yeah. tend to show that different individuals might be risk takers or some of them might be a little bit sensitive to risk. And are, are you brave enough to tell us what you think the smartest insect is or are you just going to say, well, well intelligence is a very difficult thing to... The smartest insect, yeah. yeah. Well, we wouldn't be using all those discredited IQ tests, I guess, but I guess we'd <laughs> say um, the smartest... Look, you know, but, look, it's, it's kind of hard because you can look... When you look at the, the, the breadth, and we're talking here about millions of different species doing a lot of different yeah. things, but... Some of them do some extraordinary things in terms of, um, you know, being, in terms of being smart. Like there are some animals that lay their eggs inside caterpillars, some parasitic wasps that that, you know, that like basically lay their eggs inside a living animal, and they actually wow. cue into the uh, basically when the caterpillar chews through the leaf, mm. it sends off a volatile smell. It's like if you crush basil or crush a eucalyptus leaf, you can smell that that volatile smell. These 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 wasps can actually pick, they pick that that smell and hone in and find the caterpillar. And they're actually capable of making a pretty intelligent decision of basically by, by just getting a sense of that particular smell. Mm. So maybe it's not, maybe it's not all-round intelligence. I suppose if you're talking about problem-solving, um, colonies of ants do some extraordinary things. And that's not individuals, that's really the colonies. But their capacity to solve complex problems like um, mazes or find the most effective pathways to get from A to B given various sorts of costs and benefits is extraordinary. It's been... 
it's a big part of um, network um, biology at the moment where people are trying to look at how group things like ants and even slime moulds use very, very simple decision rules to solve complex traffic questions, like when should you take path B or path A? Mm. Um, and it's being used to actually sort out some of our, um, our, our road traffic sorts of issues in terms of trying to say how can simple rules lead to optimal solutions for complex um, you know, path solving. So look, I'm, I'm, I'm biased, so I'm probably going to go with ants in that sense. But if you, if you look at an awful lot of different insects, you'll realise that they, they do very, very simple things very well, some, whether it's eating a plant or eating each other. or hmm. they, they, And some of them do make some relatively, I suppose, sophisticated decisions um, in some places. So the smartest... I'm going I'm to go... I'm, I'll, the short answer is I think I'd probably think ants are pretty much as smart as you get, but that's probably a collective intelligence rather than, rather than a, yeah. an individual animal. I'd have to do some homework to try no, and... I'm, yeah. I'm glad you've taken it so seriously and, and agonised oh. it with such... Pain over the decision. Great to talk to you, Dieter. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me, James. A great pleasure. See you later. Associate Professor Dieter Hockulai from the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Sydney. You're on ABC Local Radio.